mention that because Brother E.R. Brandon is scheduled to be back with us. I'm understanding that his health is rather fragile at this point. So be praying for Brother Brandon, if you will, over the course of the next few weeks that his strength will hold up. I think he had some responsibilities on campus that same weekend, but he's agreed to come and speak to us, and, and we're looking forward to that. We appreciate his willingness to accept that invitation, but pray for his strength and his fortitude that he'll be able to be with us on that day. I want to speak to you for the next three Sunday nights, Lord willing. See how I work that in there. If the Lord wills, he delays his return. Our, our health holds up. We're here. We're committed. For the next three Sunday nights, I want us to think somewhat about the will of God for your life. As I mentioned this morning in announcing the topic of tonight's discussion, I have mentioned, and it really is true, that probably one of the most often asked questions of me by members of the kingdom of Christ is, so we talk about the will of God, doing God's will, making sure we know what that is. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you know what God's will is for your life? We can know it generically, of course, by reading God's word, but how do we know what God wants us to be doing in terms of the minutia, the details of our life? I don't know that we really ever know that. In fact, I, and, and that's probably not an over, overpowering way to begin a, a series on the will of God to say we can't ever really know specifically what he wants us to do, but that's true. I'm reminded of that uh, scene I mentioned a few times from that old movie, Rudy. Some of you remember that football movie and how the, the young man walked on at Notre Dame. And, of course, uh, because he was living in, there in South Bend, he went for counsel from a priest, and so as he's sitting with the priest and he asks a rather overwhelming question that the priest did not feel qualified to answer, and he said, Rudy, I tell you what, I've been in the ministry all these years, and I've learned two things. Number one, there is a God. Number two, I'm not him. And so I'm not God. I don't know. I don't have the wisdom and the foresight of our Heavenly Father, so I don't know the specific will that he has for you, but I do believe that we can learn some things about God's will for our lives, and, and I hope that these lessons will recommit us and reaffirm in our hearts the desire to make sure that we are living his will out. I want to suggest that your greatest desire ought to be to know the will of God. Your greatest delight should be to do his will, and I'm also submitting that the greatest danger in your life is to not know his will, or perhaps in knowing it, to fail to do it. Nothing is right for you if it is not the will of God. Let me say that again because that's going to be the foundation for these three lessons. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is right for you if it is not the will of God. Please inscribe that in your hearts, in your minds, and with that foundation in mind, we'll be able, to, I think, to determine some things from the principles of God's word that will help us in knowing his will better. And then likewise, again, developing a commitment in our hearts and lives that we're going to do exactly that. There are about six myths. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. I don't know if you've ever seen that cable show called Mythbusters. I don't know if it's still on. But it's caught my attention a couple of times, and I've watched these guys that have dealt with myths that are prevalent, especially in our country. And so they uh, test those out to see if those really are true or if they're only legend or myth. But that's what we're going to be. We're going to be doing some myth busting tonight. There are five or six myths regarding the will of God that I want to debunk tonight. And with that foundation in mind, we'll build in positively on how we can know what God's will really is. Myth number one, let's get to it, is the map myth, M-A-P, the map myth. The first thing 
that I want us to consider tonight is what is, has been called by some, some who are much smarter than me, is the map myth. And that is the idea that God is going to give you a detailed road map for his will for you. Now let me stop for a moment and issue a disclaimer. Because you've heard me in this very pulpit stand and hold the word of God before you and say that this is a road map that God has given us from earth to heaven. And I'm not about to renege on that. I, I meant that. I still mean that. This is how God wants us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to him, the way that develops our spiritual attributes, that allows us to mature spiritually and become everything that God would have us to become while we're living in this sin-cursed earth. And nothing has happened to change my mind about that. But I, I emphasize the word detailed here. Sometimes people want to be able to read the Bible and, and to have every move in, like a, on a road map or a GPS, you know, where the GPS sometimes annoyingly says, turn right in 300 yards, and if you miss it, then, then she says with a degree, have you noticed, a degree of disdain in her voice, recalculating. And, and some people want, want to, the Word of God to read that way, that God is going to tell you every turn that you need to make, and so it's a very detailed road map. All you have to do then is to consult that road map, stay on course, you'll always be assured that you are living within the framework of the will of God. Here's the problem with that, God didn't do that. He does not give us a detailed road map. And you know what, I'm glad he doesn't. Because if he did, it would be boring for, for us to never have to really use our discernment, our wisdom that we ask God for, James 1, 5, and it would really take the romance and the adventure out of it. I've got a lesson that I think I've preached here before, but one of the main points in that lesson is that if you decide to commit your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will make a grand adventure out of your life. I believe that. But if there is no adventure in knowing what every little thing in the future might bring to pass. God doesn't do that to us. He does not do that for us. The will of God is not then that detailed, specific roadmap. And here's the point. It is primarily a relationship. And the more we grow spiritually, the more we come to trust God in that relationship that he will never steer us in the wrong direction. We may not know what that direction might be, but we come to trust God in sincere faith that God will never lead us wrong, even as Proverbs 3, 6, our text says, that if we'll trust him, he will lead us in the right direction. So it's primarily a relationship. Don't get the idea that God is going to say to you, now five years from now, here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be doing this. Or ten years from now, you're going to be doing that. Or you're going to be over here for two years, and then you're going to move, and you're going to be over there for three years. And, and some people want the God's roadmap to read like that. Again, it is a relationship. And those of you tonight who are New Testament Christians can certainly attest to the fact that when you signed on to the Lord's Army, when you became a New Testament Christian, you had really no full idea of what that was going to involve. I guarantee you 54 years ago when I signed on to the Lord's Army, I had no idea what the Lord had in mind for me in terms of the minutia of my life and the directions in which my life would take. And I know that you could say the same thing about your own Christian experience. And I can also say that when I married my sweet wife 45 years ago, I had no idea what the married life would bring. I had no idea what we were going to experience and the turns and, and the variables that would be involved in that relationship. But you see, that's characteristic of a relationship, isn't it? I do know this. 45 years ago, when we stood before my dad, he officiated our ceremony. By the way, I had to calm him down. He was so nervous. 
I was the groom, mind you, but I remember being in the little alcove and saying, Dad, don't worry, you're going to make it through this. So I had to talk my dad through my marriage ceremony, but I still remember a part of those vows, and if you're married, you remember your vows as well. But I'm going to stay with you for the rest of my life. In sickness and in health, no matter what comes, I am committed to you. I made a promise to you, and that promise is based upon the credibility and the reliability of a relationship that is tangible, that is God-blessed, and that is a, really a God thing. And when we became Christians, we also exchanged vows as we became a part of the bride of Christ. So this is a relationship. When we talk about the will of God, bear that in mind. You don't know, you wouldn't want to know every specific detail of what the future would bring. God doesn't do that to us. And again, we ought to be glad that he doesn't. I can't help but think about in terms of, of this roadmap thing, how that God led the Israelites in the Old Testament as they were going into the land of promise. And you remember at least a part of the time how he led them, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's what the Bible says. I, I'm just saying that because they didn't have to know where they were going. All they had to do was just look and say, is the pillar of cloud there? Is the pillar of fire there? And if it was there, then they knew that they were walking and trekking and going in the right direction because they were following God's leadership. And that's true in our lives as well. If we were determined to live the will of God out in our lives, then we need to have that same commitment and that same understanding. Can I see the pillar of cloud? Can I see the pillar of fire? And that's what you and I have to know. Do I have the eternal presence and the purpose of God with me as I live my life? And even though I may not know what each day will bring, I wake up and I make a recommitment to the Lord Jesus Christ that I'm going to I'm going to continue to walk in and follow your footsteps to the very best of my ability this day and help me to be able to do that better today than I did yesterday. So map, uh, myth number one is the map myth. The second myth to consider is the, this may sound a little strange, but it's the misery myth. That's the idea that if, we're, if we do God's will in our life, it's going to be painful. That is, if you're following, if you've committed to follow God's will, I think sometimes that's what keep, keeps people hesitating on the, on the edge of the baptistry. They don't really know if I really want to commit myself, and it, it really is true. And the Lord taught a number of times in his ministry that folks don't need to be talked into the baptistry. We need to help them count the cost. So there's no doubt about that. We need to help people understand as best we can from the revelation of God's will what's going to be involved in your commitment as you determine to live the Christian life. And as we've seen two people just this past week who have committed themselves and were baptized into Christ, as Sherry was this morning, to help them and to help each of us to understand what that commitment really entails. So the idea is that if I do God's will, it's going to be painful, is, is the misery myth. God, in, in the minds of people of this mindset, is some kind of celestial killjoy. And, and Lord, if I say I'll do anything that you want me to do, if I'm willing to go anywhere that you want me to go, anytime, any place, any cost, then if I make that commitment, then I'll end up as a missionary somewhere in deepest, darkest Africa, and I'll probably be eaten by cannibals. I've actually talked to people like that. You see, some people are afraid to really get to know God and to understand his will for their lives because they're afraid of what that outcome might be. They really are afraid to surrender to the Lord for fear of what he might do to them or where he might send them. I want to remind you of one thing tonight to counter that argument. 
and to bust that myth. God is a God of love. Did you hear me, church? God is a God of infinite love. And that means just what we mean when we talk about loving one another with agape love, seeking one another's highest good. And when God seeks our highest good, we can rest assured that he is only going to do what is best for us. And we don't have to fear wondering what God is going to do with my life. In fact, what we ought to be doing is waiting with bated breath and a great deal of anticipation, hopeful anticipation, knowing that God is going to do something great in our lives and really will make an adventure out of our lives. Some folks are afraid to surrender to the Lord for fear of what he might do to them and where he might send them. But again, God is a loving God. God wants for us, listen carefully, this is really the premise of the next three lessons God wants for us what we would want for ourselves if we had enough sense to want it. Chew on that for a moment. So store that off somewhere in your conscious mind, that God is a loving God, and we don't need to believe in the misery myth. God is not going to make you miserable. God is wherever he sends you and whatever he does with you will give you the abundant life. That's what John 10 verse 10 has promised us. Number three, the missionary myth. There, the, the missionary myth is basically what it sounds like. It's the idea that God's will is in place and effective only for a certain class of people. And that may sound a little far-fetched, but in my ministry, I've been able to talk to a lot of people and there are on occasion some people who really believe that God does have a will for the life of the child of God, but only for certain children of God. For example, God calls preachers and God calls missionaries, but God doesn't call ordinary people. The God has no purpose, no plan, really, specifically speaking, for the person who sits in the pew, the rank and file of the Lord's church. Listen to me now. God has a plan for the evangelist. I have no doubt about that. Again, not a detailed plan, but he has a plan and a purpose for the life of those who choose to be evangelists, who, who choose to be missionaries, and who choose to do what, what I'm doing, and that's to be able to stand and be able to present a message like this from, from the Word of God. But he also has a plan for the secretary. God has a plan for the preacher, but he has a plan for the plumber. God has a plan for everyone. And if only we'll determine and we'll study God's word and we really get into it. Have you probably noticed this already? Superficial reading of God's word. It isn't really helpful. From time to time, I've mentioned a, a number of times that Mia and I love to read. We love to read for entertainment and recreation as well as for profit. But uh, there are occasions when I'll say, "What are you?" in fact, I think we had this discussion yesterday. What are you reading now? By the way, yesterday when I asked her that question, she shocked me. She said, I'm in between books. I said, I didn't think you were ever in between books. You know, that transitional phase, usually we'll just pick one up after we've closed the book on another. But sometimes she'll say, I'll ask her, well, how did, what did you think about that book? And she'll go, well, I skimmed through most of it. And that means it didn't really hold her attention. But if we do God's word that way, and any reasonable person knows that, if we're just skimming God's word, if we're just hitting the highlights, if we're just skimming across the surface of God's word, that isn't going to help us a great deal. Because determining the will of God means really being into the word. I think that's step number one, making sure that we're into his word, that we're doing that on a very regular, by that I mean a daily basis. 
He has a plan for the Bible teacher, but he has a plan for the banker. God has a plan for every single one of us. And so please don't say, I hope these missionaries will answer God's call. I hope these preachers will answer God's call. No, Paul said that when every one of us became New Testament Christians, we all answered the call of the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, if you want the Bible for it. So God has a plan. For every one of us. Myth number four is the miracle myth. This is probably more prevalent in religious thinking. On this next, this next item on our, our list is, is, is the miracle myth. That is, you must experience something dramatic in order to know the will of God. This is the stereotypical God, show me a sign. You probably noticed that even if there were a sign, we might not even recognize it or acknowledge it. But this is the mentality that you've got to have some kind of sign, hear some kind of voice or something like that, dramatic and maybe even miraculous in order to know God's will for your life. Let me just say this about that, and there's a lot that could be said about that. But even when God did call people in that way, when you look at Old Testament pages and through the apostolic age, when God would speak to and give an assignment to people, and would do that on occasion in a miraculous way, sometimes speak to them directly as Moses at the burning bush and those kinds of theophanies, that he did not always do it that way. Even when he operated miraculously, he did not always call people and give them assignments in a miraculous, mysterious sort of way. Let me give an example of that. There's a very interesting passage in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. Verses 11 and 12 in which God is speaking to Elijah. Listen to what God said to Elijah on that occasion. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. You want, to fight, you want something dramatic, there it was. But the scripture is emphatic in helping us to understand that the Lord was not in that wind that was so destructive. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Here's what I wanted to learn and to glean from that Old Testament passage. There are a great number of people in religion who want to be earthquakers, but they don't want to be Quakers. That is, they want some kind of miraculous, mysterious, and dramatic event in their lives so that God will, with a neon sign, point them in the direction in which they should go. They want a cyclone. They want a forest fire. They want an inferno. They want an earthquake so that they can know the will of God. And I'm telling you, if you want to find out generally the will of God for your life, there remains a still small voice. But it isn't one that you will hear when you pillow your head at night. It is, in fact, the written revelation of God's eternal word found in Scripture. And both Paul and Peter tell us, affirm to us, and then reaffirm that that's all we need. Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And if you look up the word all in the original, you'll find that it means exactly the same in the original and in the receptor language. It means everything. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That well-known 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, Paul says all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. Watch this. That the man of God might be full-grown, thoroughly furnished into every good work. All we need 
to know, 2 Timothy chapter 5, back up one verse, verse 15, from a youth you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Put those three verses together, and you've got this. Everything that you need to know to become a child of God, to be redeemed from your past sins, comes from the Word of God. And then verses 16 and 17, everything that you need to do to equip you and to help you to grow to a full man or woman in Christ Jesus is supplied in the Word of God. God's given us all things that we need. If you're looking for a still, small voice, there it is. But make sure it's not still and it's not small in your life. Let that be the predominant influence in your life. The Word of God, black print on white paper. And read and study this book from day to day. Number, myth number five is the missed it myth. That's the idea when we say, I missed it. When I was young, God I had a plan for my life, and now that I'm old, you know what, I look back on it, and I think maybe God wanted me to be a missionary back when I was young and youthful and energetic and healthy, and it's too late for me now to ever do anything significant for the Lord. Now, you might think that's a stretch, but you would be amazed at how many people I've talked to who've bought into that idea. That is, I'm, I'm a senior citizen. And so there's nothing that God can really do in an effective and powerful way in my life because I've retired basically from Christian service. Now listen to me. It is never too late for you to know and to do the will of God. Are you listening to me, church? It is never too late to know and do the will of God in your life. God has a will for your life and every stage of your life. So do not sit around and lament that you can't do what you once did. God's will for your life may be different now that you have limitations and infirmities of the flesh. One would be unrealistic to say, I can do everything at 80 that I could do when I was 18. Well, you're either deluded or a liar, you know, because the limitations of the flesh will catch up with you, won't you? And we all understand that. So you may not be able to do what you were doing when you were younger, but you can do something. God has a will for every stage in your life. Now, you may have missed or you may think that you missed God's original plan for you, but I love this verse. In Joel 2 and verse 25, God says simply but profoundly, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has taken. One version says has, has eaten. So you're looking back on the harvest of your life, and you look at the years where Maybe there was a good crop, but the locust came along and ate everything, and God says, I'm going to restore those years to you. That is, it's going to come out even. In fact, I'm going to overabundantly bless you in your life, and I will make a complete restoration of those years. And isn't that great? So if you've had some years that you think were wasted, let God give you a fresh start. It doesn't matter if you're 95. It doesn't matter if you're 100. God can use you in some way. If you've ever studied guided missiles, you know that every missile that's sitting on the launching plan has a, a plan, it has a trajectory, and there are engineers and people who have worked, computer whizzes, who have worked for a long, long time to make sure that when that missile leaves the launching pad, it gets to where it's going. So there is a carefully prescribed plan for that guided missile, and it is called a guided missile for a reason. Yet hardly, according to my reading, hardly every one of those missiles ever gets to its final destination without having to make course corrections. I have a book in my library that I've referenced a number of times entitled, You Can't Fly to Heaven in a Straight Line. That says a lot, doesn't it? When you get in an airplane, you don't have to be in a missile. In fact, I would advise you didn't. 
Well, when you're in an airplane, you will never get to your ultimate destination without having to make some course corrections because of the wind, weather conditions, and so on. And that's the way it is in our Christian lives. We don't fly to heaven in a straight line. We have to make all kinds of course corrections. And with the, with the guided missile, they have onboard computers. And those thrusters began to yaw and gimbal. And if a missile strays from that first plan, then guess what? They replant it. They recalculate the course. And if it goes astray again, they replant it again. And they keep on replanting. And it's perhaps never following the original prescribed plan. But listen to me. It is never out from under control. The ones who are doing the planning know exactly where it's going in the ultimate, and that's true of our Heavenly Father. We have to make course corrections as we're trying to live the will of God in our lives. But our lives must constantly be under the control of the one who made us. If you think that you miss God's will and his plan early on, then just, just let God reprogram you where you are. However, if one of those missiles turned around and headed back to the launching pad, you know what they'd do? They'd push a button and blow it up. Don't ever let that happen to you. Don't ever head back to the launching pad. Don't rebel against God. Don't ever think that it's too late for you because you didn't know or do God's will early on. He has a plan for every stage of your life. Myth number six is the mystery myth. and That's the last one I want us to consider tonight. This is the idea that God's will is a mystery. That it's a little bit like an Easter egg hunt. Speaking of which, parenthetically, let me add that someone has said that one of the advantages of getting older and our memory not working quite as well is that we can now hide our own Easter eggs. Two, three, four, okay. And, uh, but when we project that over into the spiritual dimension, is that really the game that God has played with our lives? that I want you to do my will, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to ask you to sign a blank check. I'll fill in the amount later on. I don't read anywhere in Scripture, either in precept or principle, where God does that to us. The idea that God says, there's something I want you to do, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You search and you seek if you can find it, and we'll just, we'll just play that game of hide-and-seek for the rest of your natural life. And, you know, when, when you think about that, the implications of that are somewhat absurd. That'd be like me saying to my son, now, son, there's some things I want you to do. And I'll be up front with you. I'll be absolutely frank with you. If you do them, you're going to be very happy, and I will make sure that I reward you. But if you don't do them, I'm going to punish you, and you're going to be very unhappy. And so he says to me in a reasonable sort of way, well, Dad, since you explained it to me that way, what is it that you want me to do? And I reply, I'm not going to tell you. I want you to figure it out, but you'd better not miss it. And some people believe that that's the way God deals with us. No, that would be ridiculous. God wants you to know his will. Ephesians 5.17, be not therefore unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now let's quickly clear up those myths. This is going to take just a moment. If you, if you could meet Jesus face to face in the flesh and ask him one question, what is it that you would ask him? I think I'd know what I'd ask him. And it would be this. And yes, I know how old I am. Even at my age, I would ask the Lord this question. What is it you want me to do? What would you have me to do with my life? I don't know how long you folks have been Christians, for those of you who've made that commitment. But don't you wish that you could have asked the Lord that question face-to-face -face when you 
went into the waters of the baptistry and came out with a sudden revelation. He's answered my question. I know what he wants me to do. I'm submitting to you as a, our last passing thought tonight that the Apostle Paul asked that same question he, when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus in Acts the ninth chapter. By the way, this is the setup for the next two lessons. That's what we're going to be focusing on, Acts chapter 9. And I don't know a better chapter in all the Bible that tells us how to know the will of God for our lives than Acts the ninth chapter. Listen to the opening two verses and then we're through. Then Paul, this was the time before he was the great apostle Paul, then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and of course the way is the name that they gave the Christians, people of the way is how they were referred to by their detractors, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Those are the first two verses of Acts 9. And so we're taking them, they're taking them prisoner and sometimes they're taking their very lives. They're being executed for being guilty of nothing more than being followers of Jesus. And some of them were put in prison, others of them were put to death. Now notice verses 3 through 6. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now that's a very familiar passage to most of us. The questions that is key that we're going to be discussing for the next two Sunday nights is how do you know God's will? How do you know what he wants you to do? The text continues in verses 6 that the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city there to be told you what you must do. Now this is, I think, a wonderful promise to Saul about knowing the will of God for his life. We're going to find some principles as to how we can know God's will for our lives. Saul asked two great questions in that passage. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Can you think of, of two greater questions than those? Lord, who are you? And Lord, what do you want me to do? And then Paul spent the rest of his life learning the answer to those two great questions. He learned exactly who Jesus was, and he learned exactly what the Lord wanted him to do with his life. Today, I am suggesting that we need to be asking the same questions. Man has been described as a clever creature who has lost his way in the darkness of sin. And this is an age in which you and I live when we are not surprised when anything happens. Isn't that right? I, I picked up the paper this morning off my front yard, brought it in, unpackaged it, and looked at the headlines and the front page and thought, same old story, second verse. We live in a world of sin. And the atrocities that man brings against humanity are are things that are almost of a daily nature anymore. Technology is coming so fast at us, it's almost like we're trying to drink from a fire hose, isn't it? However, in this age of guided missiles, so many people in this world are living misguided lives. And it's not because they're bad people. It's simply because they don't know what we know. And I don't say that in any kind of condescending or elitist way. I mean that the revelation of God's will for the lives, his will for the lives of all of us, is best for us. Again, there is nothing that we should fear except that which is outside the parameters of the will of God. People may want to know the will of God for their lives, but they cannot know the will of God in and of themselves. 
You remember Jeremiah 10, 23, where Jeremiah said, Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. That is, we don't have what it takes to know God's will just in and of ourselves. Let me give you some propositions, some principles from the story of, of Saul in Acts 9 that will help us to know the will of God, but that's next time. I want to end with this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 is where Paul, in writing that first letter to Timothy, said God would have all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth. As Peter is writing his second letter in chapter 3, verse 9, he said, But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness or laxity. But he is long-suffering to all of us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the truth. He wants every one of us to be saved. I know that's God's will for our lives tonight. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. He wants you to come to Jesus and allow your faith to cause you to repent of your past sins, confess Jesus as Lord, and to be baptized till you contact his blood that will wash away every one of your sins. That's God's will for your life as we stand and sing.